and a big welcome to the Elevator podcast. My name is Micah and I'm Selena and together we interview high achieving personalities to get to know their journey and expertise and the barriers they have faced so far to empower and inspire you to reach your full potential and elevate your life. Hey team, today we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Omara Nassim, specialist counseling psychologist with more than 10 years of experience in treating eating disorders, as well as other mental health issues, including depression, addiction, anxiety, and burnout within both the NHS and private sector. Here we discuss what eating disorders are, the different approaches to their treatment, their long-term consequences, and why they may arrive in the first place. We also touch on body image, social media, the taboos around eating disorders, especially in men, as well as the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on mental health issues. Please note that some of the topics mentioned here may be triggering to some. If you feel like you may be in such a position, please abstain from listening to this episode. The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as personal medical advice. If you are struggling with disordered eating behaviors and or think you may be developing an eating disorder, please consult your healthcare professional and seek for medical help. Okay, so Omara, thank you so much for coming on today. It's a great honor to have you on. So maybe for the listeners, if you can briefly introduce yourself, um, your background and what you're doing. Okay, sure. So thank you for having me. It'll be a pleasure to, to be part of this. My name is Dr. Omara Nassim. I'm a qualified counselling psychologist and I've been working in the field of eating disorders as my specialism for the past 10 years. My training, I started off in Scotland. I actually initially started off studying media and then I felt like I had a natural calling to want to help people who have been through something quite difficult in their life. And just if I helped one person, my whole career would be worthwhile. And I didn't actually start off thinking I was going to specialise in eating disorders. So I moved into psychology and then I specialised in um, psychotherapy and counselling at Edinburgh University. Then came to London to do my doctorate. And one of my very first placements was at the Maudsley Hospital, um, the eating disorder unit down in South London. And that's something that I kept all throughout my training and ended up sort of being my natural calling, I guess. So, yeah, I've ended up staying in that field, but also done a lot of voluntary experience and, you know, experience while studying on my doctorate as well. I've worked in the IAP services, which is the GP services, um, primary care psychology in London. I've worked in um, secondary schools with young children. I did couples counselling for a while as well in my training, addictions. So right across the board, I've done quite a lot of things and then ended up, yeah, always keeping eating disorders on the go, which is now my main sort of bread and butter and what I do. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, thank you for this introduction. So, yeah, you say your your main calling is eating disorders. So can you explain what an eating disorder is and what the different types of um, EDs are? Yes. So an eating disorder is a complex psychiatric illness. You know, it's a mental health condition. Um, it's there's not one thing that we can pinpoint and say causes it, but we do know it's a mixture of things. Like there's genetic factors, there can be a predisposition for mental health conditions in families, um, biological factors, psych- psychosocial, environmental. So it's quite a complex picture of you know what how an eating disorder develops and thrives in people. It can affect anyone at any point in life. We just tend to see it developing earlier in life for people between teens and early twenties, but certainly there's 
it can develop at any point. So eating disorders are serious illnesses that require someone who is trained in understanding the complexity of the illness and managing the psychological treatment and the medical risk involved in all eating disorders, you know, not just people who are underweight, but people who are also normal weight, overweight, just depends on what, what the eating disorder presents with um, symptom-wise. Category-wise, there's so many different eating disorders um, and the, we use ICD-10 here in the NHS in the UK and the DSM-5. So the categories are anorexia, there's atypical anorexia as well, bulimia, atypical bulimia. There's OSFED, which is other specified feeding and eating disorder, which usually means it's just a mixture of symptoms that don't quite fall into the category of the others. And there's binge eating disorder, ARFID is, as well. I see it more so in autistic and Asperger sort of presentations. So there's a whole wide range of eating disorders. And some people I find get really hung up on categories, um, especially on social media and things. And I think often that gets quite misunderstood and, and misconstrued. If someone has an atypical eating disorder, of course, it doesn't mean that it's less valid or it you know, it's not important, but the treatment pathway for it and the model used to treat that person is the same as like for atypical bulimia and bulimia, it's the same treatment they would get. So usually it's more useful for a clinician to know that, you know, difference in the diagnostic criteria. Great, yeah, like I think really important points because eating disorders just is an umbrella term for like all these conditions. And I feel like, as you said, in social media, it just gets misused, especially like nowadays, I feel like, I don't know, people are talking more and more about it. And it's become this kind of trend and I find it really toxic, like having been through an eating disorder myself. So it's, I think it's quite shocking and people need to be careful. But maybe can you talk a little bit about how each type, maybe like anorexia and bulimia, just for um, in, in terms of time, just to focus on these two, how they typically present and how they differ? Sure. So for anorexia, usually there'll be like a... Uh, a weight criteria as well, like a BMI of seven, 17 or less, person would have behaviours that are deliberately influencing their weight and shape to keep them, you know, restricting an underweight or the idea there's a desire or drive to lose weight. So they'll be engaging in basically not eating enough. They could be binging and purging as well. That can be part of an anorexic presentation that a lot of people don't know about. They could be over-exercising as well. The difference between that and a, a bulimic person would be the a bulimic person would be binging and purging in a, in a set kind of set way. And the mindset of an anorexic is more restriction to lose weight and very, very focused on going down that path. Um, the mindsets are usually quite different and the criteria, it would be meeting a certain weight to, to classify as being in that range, the anorexic weight range. And atypical anorexia would be when they're not in that weight range. So they can still have anorexia, but not be underweight. But with bulimia, it would be subjective binging because somebody could consider two biscuits a binge, for example, and that's really distressing for them. But with bulimia, we're looking for a binge to be when someone is doing it for a period of three months and they're doing it quite often through the week and the binging is feeling very out of control. They can feel numb or zoned out or soothed while they're binging. But afterwards, the feeling of being out of control, eating very fast, eating a lot in a short space of time, more than they would in a, a normal sitting, they would feel also really distressed and guilt afterwards, guilty and, and a lot of shame. And so it's kind of going through that cycle and really unpicking is is that, you know, how you feel when you're binging is that that's what we classify as a binge. So that would have to be happening for a period of three months at least um, for us to be thinking that this person suffering from bulimia alongside 
what we call like a compensatory behaviour. So that would be compensating by restricting, overexercise, self-induced vomiting, using anything that's influencing weight and shape. You know, for men that might even be steroids, for example. It could be diuretics, laxatives, a lot of these things that we see now like detox teas and diet pills and lollipops and things like that. And another big thing that we're seeing now, the presentation is, is shot up definitely over the last few years, is um, orthorexic clean eating. So orthorexia isn't a diagnostic category. So if someone's very restrictive and into clean eating and using that as a way to cut out food groups, that can easily be part of an anorexic presentation or a bulimic, just looking at what's going on around it as well. Wow, that was really, really interesting. For anyone listening, there's a really good book by Winnie McGregor on orthorexia. It, it's it's really enlightening, I think. It, it can serve like anyone. I recommend else. actually to a few of my patients to read that book so they get an understanding. And usually they do come back and they're like, yeah, okay, I am doing a lot of that stuff. So they do recognize it. And yeah, you're right. You know, people can flip into different presentations and recovery. That is quite common for someone who's learning to regulate their appetite again. So like we talk about realigning that with sort of mechanical eating. So training people to eat at certain times to realign like their body and brain signals. Um, they can flip into binging quite quickly if they're not used to it as well. Or it might happen. But also it's like, don't panic. It's, it can be part of the process. It will settle down or, you know, we will work on it. And you will go back to just being able to feel more in control. So that that can happen or it can happen over a lifespan of recovery as well. It's really interesting. It's also really interesting how yeah, control plays a big role, mm-hmm. as I as I can hear about like what you say. So yeah, like so control you would say is this the main part in this? Yeah, it's like food is the symptom of, of what's going on. So that actually the sense of feeling in control or out of control is also mirrored in the you know, what's happening in eating disorder and the symptoms, I guess, you know, with the over control or under control and the food is being used as a means to cope and manage with difficult feelings you know and I think we understand that a lot more easily in the context of addictions you know when we think of alcohol or drugs people use that for a reason or to numb or to soothe or to escape or feel better and with eating disorders it's food or the behavior or whatever's happening is being used to manage something very difficult going on internally so I think it makes sense that in control out of control is very much, I think, how the person's feeling in terms of what's going on with their emotions and maybe not quite been able to access that. So emotional regulation is a huge part of what we do in recovery as well and in eating disorder specific treatment, teaching people how to have healthier habits and ways of managing how they feel because their eating disorder symptoms, they've been born for a reason, they've developed for a reason, they have a function for that person. So it's really important to understand that for each person that you work with where does it come from why is it around what does it do for you and then to understand that actually it was helping them at some point but when that becomes the only way you learn how to cope then it's maladaptive definitely and I can resonate with everything that you said because I think the most difficult thing about explaining what eating disorders are to people is that it's not about food it's not only about wanting to over exercise it's about this feeling that you are in control and actually one of the most important thing in my recovery process was to learn how to not be in control. It was just letting other people cook food for me. And when I was hospitalized, I had not all the choices and people to just cook the food for me. And I couldn't decide what was in it, how much oil they put in it. And actually, by letting go of that, you get so much more control in your life, so much more freedom. It's like quite counterintuitive, you know, what we ask you to do in treatment, you know, it's to, to lean into the discomfort, you know, and to feel the fear and learn that 
you can feel it and nothing bad will happen. There's some short term anxiety to learn how to deal with, but actually then you build the resilience and capacity to feel that way. Yeah, I had one question regarding body image and social media. Maybe if you can expand a bit more on that. Okay, so social media is a big thing now that a lot of people come and ask me about. And I guess it definitely has played a role, especially in the younger age group that I work with. So from the 18 to 25s, and we know early intervention is super important. Within the first three years of treatment, it's best that we try and catch it. Definitely social media is a part of what they're using to help maintain preoccupations and thoughts about their weight and shape and as comparison. So what we know with people with eating disorders is the negative self-comparison is much higher and there and alive than it is with people who don't have eating disorders, who don't think and maybe compare in that way. So social media is definitely influencing that or how it's being used, because obviously there's good on social media and there's not so good. It's just the the fact that it's unregulated, I think, is makes it so difficult. So social media is definitely part of the assessment and what we do in, in the NHS clinic that I used to work with. We ask about the social media use as well. How do you use it? What do you use? I always ask about it in my private work with people, for sure. And what I tend to get back is TikTok. It's really bad for people. People are always saying TikTok's the worst. And it comes out with all these algorithms, algorithms I think, that suggest things for people that there's a lot in there around how to, to lose weight and things that are kind of VD focused in a way that's not helpful. Um, but Instagram was also like one of the worst because a lot of studies have been done to back that up as well and how people interact with it. I think because it's so visual, it's very triggering for people if they're just scrolling through their feed and they see lots of what we call like stereotyped, idealised body image or whatever it's people are supposed to have. But also tracking apps, you know, my fitness pal is the one that I want everyone to delete. Stop using it. You know, if the food is an issue for you or you're you're going down that road, but you think it's problematic. If you're spending a lot of time checking and tracking, this is actually one of the things that's maintaining your eating disorder and keeping it alive and going and keeping it alive in your thoughts every time you go in and check or update it tracking your steps with apps and fitbits and things you know that all these apps also are problematic and how people use them so actually educating people on how to use it, um, these apps in a helpful way or to, to come off them and practice spending time off them and then monitoring how they feel but it is tricky because it's a difficult world to navigate when it's unregulated but there's also a lot of body positive stuff on there to follow as well and normalizing actually what a healthy normal body looks like which is anybody you know and we do have stretch marks and we do have cellulite because that's how we're we're made up that's like in our cells and no one can change that you know and just normalizing actually what all our bodies look like in their raw form rather than their filtered form so there's a helpful way to use it in an unhelpful way Definitely. Yeah, I totally agree. We had a conversation as well um, through the podcast with a photographer um, mm -hmm. also about yeah, social media. And that was really interesting as well, because yeah, she said there's a difference between a selfie and a, a self-portrait, for example. Use a selfie, which you then put on Instagram. It's just like a, a second of like your finest side, for example, and which you can then like make as, as you want for other people to see you. But a self-portrait, and that's what she's really working on is where you can also show the sides of you which you're least comfortable, for example. And we talked a lot about like respecting yourself or like finding peace with yourself and your body. And it's mm -hmm. such a hard process. And yeah, like social media so many mm -hmm. times counteracts with this. 
And also, like, there's not one way to look. There's not one body that's better than another body. And there's not, yeah. you know, beauty ideals in which people are being forced to aspire to. You know, like, even as a young person, young woman myself, being brought up in a society that's Western and, and Scotland, where I was surrounded by everyone else was white and didn't look like me. You kind of think about that growing up and how it's affected how you see yourself. Um, but, you know, what's being portrayed to me as a youngster growing up and this is beautiful and you should be blonde and a blue eyes or whatever and really tall and thin like that's not how I look and that's okay but that can also get really confusing as well these messages about I'm supposed to look like that and I don't so does that mean there's something wrong you know you you have to kind of have these conversations I think with people growing up with young people and you know put it out there that actually there is no right way to look or be and actually the beauty is in knowing your strength and being yourself it annoys me, I guess, as well at times, like just like everyone else, like why is this telling me that I need to look this way or, or you know, have this kind of body to go on the beach? Everyone's fine as they are, you know? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I totally agree with all you said. It's like, well, you do you. Like you shouldn't compare yourself to anyone because what someone else is doing, we all have really different bodies, different metabolisms, different needs during yeah. our days. It's like you can't compare yourself to someone else just compare yourself to yourself you know <laughs> it's yeah. like but it's that's just it's so much easier to say than than to do it yeah it's interesting isn't it it's good to talk about and just get it out there that we all have these thoughts and feelings at times but actually if it's becoming a problem or you're noticing it's affecting you more and more speak to someone about it or start to kind of try and reduce or cut back on those behaviors so we talked about the different categories so can we maybe talk a bit about the different treatment approaches sure so for anorexia treatment and atypical anorexia any kind of restrictive eating disorder um, the Maudsley model for anorexia nervosa treatment in adults is used weight restoration is obviously part of the work you know when you're underweight and that's an important part of also increasing your capacity to engage with the work and your psychological well-being and physical well-being so we do nutrition we do the formulation which is your individual map of understanding your eating disorder we focus on thinking styles emotional regulation work lots of other bits and pieces identity as well these tend to be like the core kind of parts of treatment as well so there's always a the medical management as well alongside psychological work and psychological risk always being assessed in treatment going forward all those physical obs and monitoring are also with people who have binge eating disorder and bulimia presentations as well. And for bulimic treatment, binge eating disorder treatment, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, is a model which which is the go-to and used. And that's, you know, looking at how thoughts relate to behaviours and can relate to, to feelings and how everything links together. Uh, so we formulate out, you know, the function of the bulimia or binge eating, what someone's doing, why they're doing it, how they feel when they're doing it, what's leading them to those behaviours, what are their triggers, and then how to teach them healthy strategies and healthier ways of managing and changing that up. You would get dietetics involved as well in a multidisciplinary team. You would have occupational therapy as well if needed. You could have family therapy alongside it if needed. Um, and you would do homework in between sessions, which everyone loves, you know, because really you have the 50 minutes with your therapist every week, but the change happens in the in-between when you're away practicing and doing everything. And now in the NHS, it's um, a lot more driven towards sort of group work as well. So those models, but being able to, to do it in small groups. And with the pandemic, that's all went virtual, which has its pros and cons. I actually think it's great in that you can um, see a lot more people at once and target people who maybe are quite far away or it's difficult for them to come in. So yeah, there's group work as well with the same, the same model, CBT and Mantra. Okay, yeah, really interesting. I really also like how you said that 
there's this issue about identity. I think an eating disorder is also about creating this identity around yourself because you don't want to accept who you are. It's a way of hiding, actually. Yeah, for a lot of people that I work with, a lot of my patients, um, I definitely have seen that identity is there for a reason you know because when you shed the eating disorder identity you get rid of that then it's like well who am I now who and that can be quite confronting and you know like you're figuring out together well who are you without eating disorder because you're not your illness nobody is their illness you know you're you and you always were you before this happened and afterwards you're probably going to come out of it different so you're kind of transforming in treatment and coming out of it with new wings so it's like you know who am I what am I about what's important to me what do I like that all the eating disorder was taken up all the time before. So you are figuring all this out and coming out more confident and like evolving as a person with that growth. Um, so it is transformational. And I think lots of people have definitely said to me as well, like a lot of the the reason for it developing in their in their teens or early on in life or through transitional phases in life, the idea of who am I going to be? What do I want to do in my life? Oh my God, I have to go to uni. I have to grow up. I have to be responsible I have to go through this horrible thing that is puberty with my hormones going crazy you know all these things that are difficult as a teenager so actually part of the mental health condition or anorexia or bulimia whatever it might be is to help be protective and have this function of well I don't quite have to grow up if this happens to me right now you know this can keep me here and keep me safe and protect me from having to kind of deal with all that stuff you know, that's, that's part of the function of it as well. It's part of understanding why it's around. We were featured in the BBC documentary on Freddie Flintoff, Living with Bulimia. So I watched a little bit of the documentary, but it was really interesting how there's this huge stigma around eating disorder in men. And this documentary about Freddie just really highlighted that really beautifully. So maybe if you can expand a little bit on that, on like eating disorders in men and how they treated, how they struggle to access treatment. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was last year that it was out actually, I think 2020. Um, it was lovely to be part of that. It was such a good uh, experience and a good process. And I think definitely what came out from it was so many more referrals, so many more men and going, oh my gosh, I can relate to this. And just feeling really encouraged by Freddie being so brave and talking about it and, and speaking about something so personal really helped a lot of people come forward and get help. So the treatment for men is absolutely the same as it is for any any gender that we come across. You know, it's always looking at that individual and tailoring treatment for them as well and understanding what's led them there. And there definitely is underrepresentation of men and ethnic minorities, etc. And that's something that's changing. I think there's a body of work going into that and it has been changing over the past like five, ten years for sure. Of course, men get eating disorders too. They absolutely do. But they struggle a lot more in getting help. And I think part of that is because of the reluctance to talk about how they feel. So emotional expressivity is, is much more difficult or, you know, tricky to navigate with men. I think diagnosing men because maybe picking up on it, uh, them seeking help, they're likely much more likely to seek help when they're at the end of quite extreme presentations of way they've held on they've suffered more because they're not wanting to come and talk about it and get help or they're not encouraged to or they don't recognize it um, and also diagnosing and not picking up on the fact this person might have an eating disorder is obviously problematic we should be treating men and women the same but I think obviously a lot of that comes from back in culturally back in the day and how people were taught in their training and maybe just refreshing training and getting different you know 
levels of training out to GPs and other services that where men are screened for these things and present for help. So yeah, there's a lot of shame and stigma around. And I think these ideas of what it is to be masculine need challenged, you know. There's no one way to be feminine. There's no one way to be masculine. You know, there's all these different forms and representations of what it is to be um, a man or embody masculinity and seek help and be emotional and vulnerable and see them as strengths. But unfortunately, there's a huge amount of shame and stigma which I think is much more pronounced for men trying to get help with something that's related to their mental health rather than their physical health. Freddie spoke about that really well in the documentary. You know, like men don't get this or men shouldn't suffer from this or I have a sense that I can control it is a lot of what he spoke about. And that's, you know, problematic because that's what the eating disorder wants you to think so it can thrive. And shame and secrecy also help it thrive and keep it alive. But actually the work is smashing that open and saying, no, actually, I do need help. There's nothing wrong with this. I can get better. We all have mental health. We're all on a spectrum with that. Sometimes we're, we can be a lot better and sometimes we can be more vulnerable and more in need of support and help. That's true. It's really good to hear that this is changing. So I hope, yeah, in the future, this will, yeah, as you say, through the education or training, this will be a, a more easy topic to talk about or to address. So um, another question I had was, do you see like a spectrum of co-diseases together or associated with eating disorder? For sure. You know, it's very rare that somebody just comes in and they just have an eating disorder and that's it, you know, but uh, depression, anxiety, um, personality disorders can be part of the picture as well. Trauma, PTSD, lots of things. Yeah, I think anxiety is a huge one I've seen post-pandemic. The eating disorder is born as a function of helping manage that anxiety a lot of the time. So it's part of the assessment work as well, you know, taking into account what's come first so what do you think is developed first and then understanding how they're linked together so you treat one and you're, you're kind of treating the others at the same time as well and any good clinician if, if they recognize that person still needs help with something at the end of treatment will make sure they get that help and refer them to the right place to do that could you touch on a little bit on the long-term consequences of eating disorders? So there's actually a really good um, experiment that everyone, well, I assume everyone knows it, maybe not actually, the Minnesota Starvation Study. It was a study done by Ansel Keys and it's on YouTube. So just type in Minnesota Starvation Study and have a watch where a group of men, you could never do this now, were basically put on a diet, a semi-starvation diet. So they were allowed to eat a healthy amount and then they started to reduce their calories. So what that shows is then the effect of starvation on the brain psychologically and what happens to people and then refed back to what they were having before not eating enough of what you need led to brain changes as well the longer that goes on for people we know that becomes more chronic and much more difficult to change and, and treat it is possible but if someone's had a deep disorder for a very very long time 10 20 30 years those changes in the brain become, become quite chronic and hardwired and they're more difficult to change and target so that's why we talk about early intervention being so important to reverse that quite quickly before it sets in and becomes, you know, quite an entrenched and rigid um, change in the brain. Star medically, as well, starvation, the effects of what happens, you, you know, your brain actually shrinks and then that can reverse through nutrition and, and treatment as well. So parts of the brain shrink and that affects obviously your emotional regulation, your ability to feel relaxed, happy, joyful emotions. Your brain's much more sensitive to threat and negative emotions when that happens as well. Bone health as well, especially in, in women, osteopenia, 
the what happens before you get osteoporosis, the bone thinning. There's lots of like physical and um, long-term health implications for someone who's starving themselves or being sick or purging long-term that your heart muscle is there's so much pressure and it's weakened. You risk a cardiac arrest, your deranged um, electrolyte levels. So it's, there are lots and lots of long-term effects from this if you keep in those behaviours, you know. So that's why we do the medical monitoring alongside like monitoring bloods, monitoring weight, monitoring doing ECGs, physical obs, which is like blood pressure, sitting and standing, temperature. Your ability to regulate your temperature is quite, you know, like a basic thing day to day. So, you know, being really underweight means a lot of people are just running around constantly feeling cold because the blood supply is going to their vital organs to keep them alive. Like growing that lanugo hair as well, very fluffy light hair as well as a sign of starvation, the body doing what it needs to to try and survive. Losing fertility as well, you know, your period's stopping you know lots and lots of things so just sorry you're just sort of rambling off the top of my head but um of course there's long-term effects from this and for bulimics as well with their teeth things as well there's lots of things that you don't actually think about and think of and the good thing is most of all of this is reversible you know through treatment and through nutrition and through weight restoration and learning to get the nutrients and learning healthy habits but it's a delight when you see this stuff change with people and get better when you're working with them, you know, and people start to actually feel differently. You know, they feel their feelings differently. They're a lot more intense and they, they talk about that like, oh, my gosh, I've never felt this level of intensity of feeling before. So that's a real change as well, because the brain is starting to do what it needs to do again. It's starting to pop again, essentially, and feel things. And, you know, that's nice. I'm like, don't panic. I know it can feel strange, but it's a good thing. So you, earlier you mentioned post-pandemic, there's been an increase in eating disorder parts or like an anxiety, depression. Can you just outline about this one? So in both the NHS and my own in practice, I've noticed there's been a huge influx in the NHS with the pandemic. Now there's like a two-year wait list for some people to be seen. As a service, you know, we're really frustrated and heartbroken that we can't just see everyone as soon as possible and what they need. It's been so hard for people. You know, it's not that we're choosing to work from home. We're actually in a crisis in the world, you know, like, and we're having to adapt all of us and do the best we can. So people were taken away from their support systems and structures and the whole world's changed. And already if they were struggling with their mental health and they were isolated, this became even more difficult. Or even going back to families who are problematic. When whose family isn't problematic, but yeah, you know, you go into back to your family dynamic and it can be really difficult to suddenly be at home again or where some, somewhere where maybe your issues first started and that can be quite triggering teenagers and young people have really found it difficult and are a lot more on the rise and presenting with mental health um, services and getting help and seeing that in my private practice as well I'm definitely seeing a lot more younger people coming through with more cases of anxiety and depression and you can hear a pattern of well it started at the start of the first lockdown it's just a case of I wish the government would make it easier for the NHS to be able to to see everyone that we need to see Yeah, it's such a shame. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just really frustrating when you have this long waiting list. Anyone needs needs help, right? If they're asking for help, they need help, yeah. but probably right now. Like, they, you can't just wait for five months and then let this person just walk around in the street. So I think there's really, like, a need for change. But I think this is happening, right? I think they're sort of taking that into account. But yes, of yeah. And also as clinicians, you know, it is frustrating for all of us in the service when we know there's these massive wait lists and that upsets us because we want to be able to help as many people as possible. So actually, I would encourage people if you're on a wait list and you're waiting to get help and 
you've been there for a long time, phone the service and ask them, is there anything they can do? Quite often I would offer reviews to people and, uh, you know, give them tips and things and check in with them as and when to so they're not just left languishing on a wait list. That's, you know, we don't want anyone to get worse. So do let us know if your symptoms change and call your service and let them know. And also you can complain to your local commissioner and let them know, actually, there's a problem here. And that then helps even all of us as an NHS team to highlight that issue. Because quite often they're not going to listen to us as much as they're going to listen to the, the, the patient, you know, the actual person and service user. So, you know, please have a whinge. It really does help us. You know, it's important. Have your voice heard as well in that way. So it's a question we ask all of our guests. What is your favourite word or quote and why? Oh, I'm really terrible when put on the spot with things. I feel like I should say something really philosophical like Maya Angelou and I'm sure there's something in there. But actually a word that's really meaningful to me is an Arabic word. And the word is called, it's sabr. It has like a multiple kind of multi-layered meaning, but it means to like have patience. For me, I interpret it as having patience and endurance and having patience to wait, even in the midst of suffering and despair and difficulty, kind of relates to that. When you're going through a difficult time, to have patience and endure and to know that it's not lost and good will come. I hope that makes sense, yeah. That's perfect. Oh, that's really beautiful. I like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. so much. For the listeners, if anyone has identified with anything that we said or they feel like they may be affected by an eating disorder, can you direct them towards resources that they can use now or like who to contact and how to contact them? Yeah, absolutely. I can give you a list of really useful books and resources as well. Um, Beat, the leading ED UK charity as well. They have a beautiful website with lots of resources. Please go to your GP and ask for help and get a referral to your nearest NHS eating disorder service. And I'm available to contact as well for help or just any queries that you might have. And I have an Instagram and a website where you can contact me. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Omara as much as we did and learned a bit more about what is sometimes a very taboo topic, but unfortunately affects many more people than we think. We will find links to Omara's website and other useful resources mentioned here in the show notes. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to this podcast, as well as share it around you so that we can reach and empower more people to elevate their lives. If you wish to support our work, please check out our link tree where you can find a link to donate. So see you next week for another exciting episode.